Chapter 12 of Flaming Youth. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mrs. L. Sid. Flaming Youth by Samuel Hopkins Adams. Chapter 12. If I could find it in my heart, dearest one, to blame you for anything, it would be for sending little Pat to the sisterhood school. So wrote Robert Osterhout to Mona Fentress. With the best of intentions, they wreck a mind as thoroughly as house-wreckers gut a building. It was your choice, and I dare not change it. Even if I could persuade Ralph to take her out of that environment and send her to Bryn Mawr or Vassar or Smith, which is where she ought to be, she would rebel. She has a contempt for those rah-rah girls, a prejudice bred of the shallow and self-sufficient snobbery which is the basic lesson of her scholastic experience. To be sure, they have finished her in the outward attributes of good form, but most of that is a natural heritage which any daughter of yours would have. She can be, when on exhibition, the most impeccable little creature, sparkling and easy and natural and charmingly deferential toward the older people with whom she comes in contact, when she chooses. For the most part she elects to be calmly careless, slovenly of speech and manner, or lightly impudent, to have good breeding at call, but not to waste it on most people. That is the cachet of her set. But these are surface matters. It is the inner woman. Yes, beloved, our little Pat is coming to conscious and dynamic womanhood, which concerns me now and would concern you could you be here. Appalls me, too. But perhaps that is because my standards are the clumsy man standards. What is she going to get out of life for herself? What does all this meaningless preparation, aside from the polishing process, look to? If hers were just a stupid, self-satisfied mind, a pattern intellect like Constance's, it would not so much matter. Or if she had the self-discipline and control which these athletics have given her, I should be less troubled. But Pat's is a strange little brain, hungry, keen, and uncontrolled. It really craves food, and is having its appetite blunted by sweets and drugs. Is there nothing that I can do? I hear you ask it. Yes, now that she is at home, I can train her a little. But not rigorously, for her mind is too soft and pampered to set itself seriously to any real task. In the days of her childish gluttony, I used to drive her into a fury by mocking her for her pimples, and finally by excoriating her vanity got her to adopt a reasonable diet. The outer pimples are gone, but if one could see her mind, it would be found pustulous with acne, and there I can do little against the damnable influence of the school which has taught her that a hard-trained, clean-blooded mind is not necessary. The other girls do not go in for it. Why be a highbrow? She is so easily a leader in the school, and, as she boasts, puts it over the teachers in any way she pleases. In the days before she became aware of it herself, it used to be hard to get her to brush her teeth. Today, I presume that her worthy preceptresses would expel her if she did not use the latest dentrifice twice a day, but they are quite willing to let her mind become overlaid with foul scum for want of systematic brushing up. Dynamite for that institution and all like it. Nothing else would serve. With all your luxuriousness, Mona, your love of excitement, your carpe diem philosophy of life, Pat, who has taken Latin, does not know what carpe diem signifies. 
your eagerness for the immediate satisfactions of the moment. You never let your brain become softened and untrained and fat. The higher interests were just as much a part of the embellishment of life to you as were flowers or games, music or friends. What inner friends will little Pat have? Not literature. Shakespeare she knows because she must. The school course requires it. But he is a task, not a delight. Thackeray is slow and Dickens a bore. Poetry is a mechanical exercise. I doubt whether a single really beautiful line of Shelley or Keats or Coleridge remains in her memory, though she can chant R.W. Service and Walt Mason. Swinburne she has read on the sly, absorbing none of the luminousness of his flame, only the heat. Similarly, Balzac means to her the Contest Triolatiques, also furtively perused. Conrad and Wells are vague names, something to save until she is older. But O. Henry she dutifully deems a classic, and is quite familiar with his tight-rope performances, proud of it, too, as evincing an up-to-date erudition. As for the latest books of the day, she is keen on them, particularly if they happen to be of some such lewd and false achievement as the intolerable Arab. Any book spoken of under the breath has for her the stimulus of a race, she must absorb it first and look knowing and demure when it is mentioned. The age of sex, Mona. Her standards of casual reading are of like degree. She considers town topics an important chronicle, and Vanity Fair a symposium of pure intellect. Yet she has been taking a course in literature at the school. Science has no thrill for Pat, therefore she ignores it. Feudal little courses in how to know things like flowers and birds and mushrooms have gone no deeper than the skin. No love of nature has been inculcated by them. She hardly knows the names of the great scientists. Einstein she recognizes through having seen his travels chronicled and heard vaudeville jokes about him. But mention Pasteur or Metchnikoff, and you would leave her groping, and she doubtless would identify Lister as one who achieved fame by inventing a mouthwash. However, she could at once tell you the name of the fashionable physician to go to for a nervous breakdown. Her economics are as vague as her science. Politics are a blank. But to be found ignorant of the most recent trend of the movies or the names of their heroes, or not to know the latest gag of some unspeakable vulgarian of the reviews, that would overwhelm her with shame. Her speech and thought are largely a reflection of the contemporary stage, not the stage of Shaw and O'Neill, but of bedroom farce and trite musical comedy. Thus far, she compares unfavorably an education with the average shop girl. In music and art, the reckoning is better, but this again is largely inherited. If the sap-headed sisterhood have not fostered, they have at least not tainted her sound instincts in these directions. She has followed her own bent. As it is a professedly denominational school, she has, of course, specialized or been specialized upon as a churchwoman. A very sound and correct churchwoman, but not much of a godwoman. No philosophy and very little ethics are to be found in her religion. Worship is, for her, a bargain, of which the other consideration is prayer. She gives to God certain praises and observances, and asks in return special favors. I'll do this for you, God, as you do as much for me some day. Her expectancy of assured returns she regards as a praiseworthy and pious quality known as faith. Blasphemy, of course. Not the poor child's. 
The sin, which is a sin of ignorance and loose thinking, is upon the sanctified sisterhood. They have classified the deity for Pat, God as a social arbiter. The sisterhood are purists, naturally, but purists only by negation. All the essential facts they dodge. True, there is a course in hygiene. It is conducted by a desiccated virgin who minces about the simple and noble facts of sex life as if she were afraid of getting her feet wet, and whose soul would shrivel within her could she overhear the casual conversation of the girls whom she purports to instruct. All that side of knowledge and conjecture they absorb from outside contacts. A worse medium would be hard to conceive. From what Pat indicates of the tittle-tattle of ingenue's luncheons, it would enlighten Rabelais and shock Pepys. And the current jokes between the girls and their boy associates of college age are chiefly innuendo and double entendre based on sex. Pat cannot say bed or leg or skin without an expectant self-consciousness. Some reachy sort of bedroom story has been lately going the rounds, the point of which is involved in the words nudge and phone. Every time either word is used in Pat's set, there are knowing looks and sniggers, and some nimble wit makes a quick turn of the context and gets his reward in more or less furtive laughter. It is not so much the moral side, it is the nauseous bad taste that sickens one. The mind decays in that atmosphere. Once Pat said to me, Bobs, you and Mr. Scott are the only clean-minded men I know. Think of what that means, Mona. The viciousness of such an environment. Yet the youngsters themselves are not essentially vicious, not many of them. They are curious with the itchy curiosity of their explorative time of life, and they have no proper guidance. The girls are worse off than the boys who do gain some standards in college. But are finishing schools churchly or otherwise? Hell is paved with their good intentions. Pat's is as not worse as the others, I suppose. But the pity of it, the waste of it for her. Hers is such a vivid mind, such a brave, straightforward little mind, at war with that hungry, passionate temperament of hers, yet instinctively clean if it could be protected from befoulment. I have been talking biology with her, and she absorbs it with such swift, sure appreciation. The day of trial for her will come when the lighter amusements pall and her brain demands something to feed on, unless before that time it becomes totally insisted. Carrie Scott's influence on her is good. She likes and respects him, and is a little afraid of him, too. He has a quality of quiet contempt for cheap and shoddy things to which she responds, though not always without bursts of her fiery little temper. If he were less of the natural aristocrat, in all the outer attributes he would not impress her so. Meantime, I am glad to see him take some interest, even though it be but a playfully intellectual one, and anyone who will divert his mind from Constance. Sometimes I have thought disaster imminent in that quarter. Disaster! How readily one falls into the moralist's speech, and how your dear lips would quirk at that tone for me, dearest. Yet a liaison between those two would be potentially disastrous. For Connie has nothing to give a man like Carrie Scott except her beauty. If he is the man I think him, he will never take her for that alone or if he does, be long satisfied with it. Yet her charm is terribly strong. I wonder whether you really loved Carrie Scott, Mona, as I have loved and still love you.
Coming downstairs after writing this letter from the dead woman's room where a desk had been set aside for him as executor of her estate, Osterhout found Carrie Scott, dressed in evening clothes, waiting in the library. On his return from his trip abroad, Scott had unobtrusively resumed his established place at Holiday Knoll. He had seen as much of Constance as before, perhaps more, because Dee, between whom and Scott a very frank and easy friendship had grown up, was occupied with Jameson James to the partial exclusion of other associations, and therefore Scott was less with her than formerly. He did not like James. Scott and the doctor greeted each other cordially. "'You have a festive air tonight,' remarked Osterhout. "'Yes. It's the special symphony concert this evening. I'm taking Constance.' "'No, you're not,' contradicted a hoarse and gay voice. Pat smiled upon them from the entrance. The two men turned to look at her. She stood, one hand above the tousled shimmer of her short, dark hair, lightly holding by the lintel. In her eyes were laughter, anticipation, and a plea. Her strong, young figure, preserving still much of the adorable awkwardness of undeveloped youth, had fallen into a posture of stilled expectancy. She wore a sweater of some exotic metallic blue, a short, barred skirt, and woolen stockings, displaying the firm, rounded legs. You're taking me, aren't you? She added in the husky, breaking sweetness of her voice. Into the minds of the two men darted diverse responses to the appeal of the interrupter. Carrie Scott thought, What a child it is! Wiser and more cognizant, through experience of the years, Robert Osterhout said within himself, Good Lord, it's a woman! Why the charming substitution! inquired Scott in the manner which, to her unfailing delight, he used toward Pat as toward any of his older associates. Con's got a headache. Carrie Scott understood perfectly. This was subterfuge on Constance's part. She was unready to face the issue. There had been a preamble between them on the previous evening. Tacitly, it was understood that this evening was to determine their future relations. And now she was shirking the crisis. Or was she merely playing the part of the teaser, drawing back the more to inflame his ardor and perhaps her own? Of the two hypotheses, Scott inclined to the former. It was more in consonance with her natural inertia of character. If she were in love with him, it was not the kind of love which justified itself by daring, by taking the risks, by boldly facing sacrifice. Inexplicably, he felt a quality of relief mingling with his natural pique. He was well satisfied to postpone, to let the decision go, to find relaxation in taking Pat to the concert. In the companionship of this eager, acute, vivid child, he would breathe a clearer atmosphere, with something of a mental stimulus, a tingle in it, that which he most missed in his association with the married sister. All of this rapid cogitation was quite without reflected effect upon his imperturbable manner as he said, Tell Constance that I'm so sorry, won't you? And that I appreciate her sending so delightful a substitute. Oh, she didn't send me, answered Pat composedly. It's all my own idea. A very good one, grunted Osterhout. Pat's a connoisseur of music. But don't keep my infant out too late, Scott. All right, Pop, returned Scott with mocking deference as the older man left. How long can you wait? demanded Pat of her escort. I can't wait at all. My car is champing at the leash now. Pat's illumined face fell. 
but I can't go this way. Why not? I like you that way. But you're always so awfully correct. I look like a mess. You look like, he searched for and found the picture, like a medieval page. She made a grimace. Yes, a boy. In frank unconsciousness, she set her hands with spread fingers against her breasts. Flat, like a board, she said disconsolately. I like it, he reassured her. It's part of the charm. She gave her characteristic soft crow of pleasure. That's the nicest thing you could possibly say to me. Do you mean it? Really? Of course I mean it. Why not? I thought men liked girls to be just the other way. All rounded. She peered at him doubtfully. Perhaps it's because you're old, she surmised. Taken aback for the moment, he interpreted the innocent speech too literally. I'm not as old as that, though I don't suppose... I rather wonder what you meant by that. Oh, nothing. Just that the point of view must be different, isn't it? Less personal? It's very personal in this case, he retorted with a real warmth of friendliness for this strange and appealing child, and quite simple. You're a very delightful little pat. I like your type. Petite gamine. What's that? Isn't French taught in your school? It's taught, but isn't necessarily learned, she answered, summing up in that flash of criticism the essential falsity of the whole finishing school system. I see. You know what a gammon is? Gammon, she gave it the English pronunciation. Oh, yes. Gamine is the feminine, but there's a suggestion in it of something more delicate and fetching, a verve of diablerie, as there is in you. It's hard to say in English. I could describe you better in French. Could you? Then I'll learn French. And I think it's divine of you said she, employing her favorite adjective, to like my funny, flat figure. You know, she added, sparkling at him mischievously, you're taking a chance on this concert thing. Any special chance other than that of being late? Oh, I shan't be a minute now that I needn't dress. Yes, you're taking a big chance. I'm an awful nut over music. It does all kinds of things to me. I'm quite capable of falling on your neck and bursting into sobs if they play anything I awfully like. Beneath the lightness, he sensed a real emotion. Are you really so fond of it? Then I'm doubly glad that you're coming. I adore it. Really good music, I mean. Oh, I do wish I could play or sing or do something worthwhile. Have you ever tried? She shrugged her shoulders. Too lazy. If it wasn't for the boring practice, I might do something. She raised her voice and sang the opening bars of the Hindu sleep song. The devil, exclaimed Carrie Scott. All the huskiness had passed from the voice, which issued from the full throat, pure, fresh tone, deep and effortless. You ought to be ashamed of yourself, he declared so vehemently that she pouted. Now you're scolding me. Because you're letting a voice like that go untrained. Lots of people like it as it is, she said resentfully. Then they don't recognize what a really lovely thing it might be, properly handled. Why haven't you taken lessons? Again the shrug. I did, but I stopped. Too much trouble. Will you teach me? I? Heavens no, 
You want a professional. What? And practice an hour every day? cried the horrified Pat. Two hours, three probably. It would be worth it. I'd be bored to a frazz. You're bored with anything that means work, discipline, self-restraint, aren't you, Pat? Are you going to lecture me again? I love it, she observed unexpectedly and with a brilliant smile. In spite of himself, he laughed. No, I'm going to take you to the concert. Get your hat. Settling herself in the car like a contented kitten, Pat presently said, There's something I want to tell you, Mr. Scott, only it isn't too easy to begin. Why not? We're friends here, aren't we? Right. That makes it easier. You remember at the club what we talked about? Yes. I've been awfully good about that. I haven't at all. At least, nothing serious. I am flattered to have been so good an influence, he remarked with his faintly ironic inflection. Constance would not have caught it, but little Pat's ear was truer. Don't josh me about it, she protested. Nobody's ever tried to be a good influence for me, really, except Bob's, and he doesn't know. Why doesn't he know? Too old. But, she added in afterthought, you're old too, aren't you? Terribly. I'd almost forgotten that, she said thoughtfully. End of chapter 12